0: is an odyssey original this is coronavirus daily world on pause i'm charles feldman
1: and i'm mike simpson we're in the kx odyssey studios in los angeles the vaccines they're doing their jobs for covid the government though says it's devoting more than three billion dollars to develop treatments better treatments to fight the disease for when people get
0: it and other viruses maybe you'll get to take a pill someday Kids playing with each other again and getting back to normal, and the uh, common cold is right there with them.
1: Pandemic might have more lawmakers considering Medicare for all.
0: But let's start with COVID-19 treatments. With us is Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease physician and scientist at the University of Minnesota Medical School. He's been working on his own clinical trials of potential COVID treatments. Uh, doctor, how far along are we with these treatments? you know, we're really just
2: starting. And and I think that is, that's the problem that there hasn't really been an investment in antifungal or antiviral um, medicines. And so they're trying to make a longer term investment over the next, not just one year, but next three to five years.
1: And are we correct in saying that, hey, this is when you wake up and you're feeling bad and you need something that's akin to like a Tamiflu and take it for a few days? This is, this is the goal?
2: Yeah, I think that there's, you know, for antiviral medicines we've got highly effective therapies for HIV and hepatitis C, um influenza a little bit, um but a lot of there's tons of viruses that but most of them don't have therapies and so There are a lot of similarities. And so, yeah, if you have, you know, could you develop antiviral medicines for other viruses that we get exposed
0: to? So the the real question, I suppose, is you mentioned that we're sort of not that far along or not as far along as we would like to be. And I'm wondering how much of that is because, frankly, money Uh, Is it that pharmaceutical companies are not that interested in developing a pill that you take once or maybe four or five times in a week and then you're done and they're more interested in in funding studies for chronic illnesses?
2: Uh, Completely. I think that when you look at just antibiotics and antivirals and sort of, you know, temporary things that you take for one or two weeks and you're done, that that's not a big moneymaker. And so from a commercial um, investment, like a pharmaceutical company just doesn't, that, that's not That's not as as, as um, sexy as a chronic disease where you got to take a single pill every day for the rest of your life. And so that's a much bigger moneymaker. And so um, the antimicrobials uh, just have not been, um, they're just not as big a moneymaker. And so ultimately that means the government really needs to help subsidize or support their
1: development. Is any of this complicated by the fact that for some of these to work with, with some of these viruses, you know, you got to catch it early before it starts really wreaking havoc. And maybe you don't know you have it for a while until it's all over the place.
2: That's true. Obviously, with, uh, you know, with the uh, COVID, the remdesivir, which which is, uh, you know, an existing, it's basically the only antiviral, you know, thus far, you know, that's really given and it's most effective earlier on. And so, you know, if it's given late, it really doesn't have much of an effect. And so um, I think for a lot of viruses, you know, you're sick for a week and then you get better. Um that early therapy would be essential. But um, at the same time, uh, I don't know if we what's what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now, is there a new outbreak of some other virus and having some of these antivirals available uh, would certainly be useful.
0: There was a headline I saw this morning that uh, predicted that we might have what amounts to a pill for covid by the end of the year, but I'm not really hearing that from you.
2: No, there there is certainly uh, some. There's basically you know one antiviral um, oral medicine that's been under development um, called uh, molnupiravir, and so that um, you know that's that's one agent, and so um, it's kind of it, it acts on the same target as the remdesivir does. Um, that that drugs and trials, but you know with with investment and money, people can look in like that drug and say, oh, what about this? You know, what about this this drug or what about that? That um, might work a little bit better, uh, and so. I think with some investment over the next three to five years, it's predictable. Then companies might actually invest in this market. Otherwise, a year ago, if you're going to say, well, we're going to develop vaccines and this is going to be gone in a year uh, in the U.S., um, there's not a big financial incentive for companies to jump in with both feet to really develop antivirals.
1: Are these new formulations or are some of these getting pulled off the shelves?
2: I think over the last year, both have happened. Uh, the people have pulled everything off the shelf and, and you know whether it's an antiviral or cancer drug or any, you know, any drug that anyone had under patent, they, you know, they threw it, um, you know, in cell culture and, and testing against coronavirus to see if there was any effect. And so um, some of those, you know, like ivermectin, uh, for instance, is kind of one of the, uh, has a little bit of buzz that seems to have an antiviral effect. Um, and what the clinical benefit is, is, is not quite known yet. But um, yeah, so a lot of things have been pulled off the shelf to be looked at.
1: Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease physician, scientist, University of Minnesota Medical School. Thanks.
0: Kids are having fun again with each other. They're playing baseball and other sports. They're playing together at parks. Oh, and the common cold hits playing right along with them.
1: Yeah, remember that? It's back after largely disappearing. Dr. Catherine Williamson, pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Orange County here in Southern California. So, doctor, you see a lot of kids with the sniffles?
3: Yes. um, The the colds are back. They have been coming back for, for a little while. Um, and now that kids are spending more time with each other and with families, we are seeing a lot more colds running around.
0: Now, you know, I, I know I've already heard some discussion uh, from adults saying, well, this is terrible. I mean, the kids are going to get colds again. We should keep them in masks until they become adults, because otherwise they're going to be coughing and sniffling and sneezing. But to some degree, kids need to be exposed to this sort of stuff so their immune system develops in a healthy way. Isn't that the case?
3: Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I mean, colds are going to happen even if you do keep them masked because kids are going to touch things, they're going to put their fingers in their mouth um, of all ages, especially the little ones. And so it's really hard to keep kids from getting cold. And so there's really a few things that are just so important to keep them safe, which is number one, make sure that your kids are vaccinated against the stuff that's really bad. So the pneumonia vaccine, the whooping cough vaccine, and the COVID-19 vaccine for kids 12 and up. Make sure your kids are vaccinated or and surrounded by people who are vaccinated, and then make sure they're getting enough sleep, eating good healthy food, and getting plenty of exercise. That is one of the best ways to keep their immune system boosted.
1: Mom and dad, when they see the kid get sick, they're probably more likely to rush them into you, though, right? Than if they had the cold, because they're going, "Oh, I'm gonna ride this out. It's fine. I get this." But your kid has 102. Is oh my gosh, my child, my child, take it to the pediatrician right now. Help him or her.
3: Yeah, definitely. Well, it is, it's harder with kids, right? Because the younger they are, they can't really tell you how terrible they're feeling. And sometimes kids, when they don't feel good, they, they look really sick. And sometimes it's hard to tell, are they really sick or is this just a common cold? So, you know, pediatricians who have seen kids grow up over a period of time, and we know what it looks like when a kid is really sick, we, we are a good first line to say, hey, let's, let's help you out here. Do we have an ear infection going? Is it just a runny nose or something more serious?
0: So let me let honest answer here, doctor. Do you ever get like parents come in to Mike's point and they're just so, you know, oh, my kid's sick and he's sneezing and he's coughing. And do you ever kind of to yourself think, it's a cold, get over it?
3: (laughs) There is sometimes some internal dialogue there, but you know, I think that's most important. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. But what I love about my job and what I love so much is developing that relationship with parents. Because when I think something like this, like, okay, we're being a bit overcautious here. I'll have that internal dialogue, but then I'll say it out loud. I'll say, hey, you know, I get it. You know, your first-time parents and your kid's sick and it's never happened before. And I empathize. And I say, let's just let's take a sec and, and really think about, you know, what the concerns are and the consequences. And also the signs to look for when they're really sick. Because the worst thing in the world is to miss a a kid who actually really is sick and needs help. And so the the more that I can connect with the parents and make them comfortable and also look for the signs along with myself, the safer those kids are and the better the parents feel as well.
1: Yeah. Do you see a lot more firstborns than thirdborns? (laughs) They get used to it after a while.
3: That is true. Yeah, I have a lot of first-time parents who say, well, you're going to see a lot of us. And I say, you know what, that's my job <laughs> that's and fine. I
1: love it. But before we let you go, you said, you know, there are things to look for for the really sick children. What would that red flag be?
3: So prolonged fevers are one of the biggest things. You know, generally a fever for a day, maybe two days can come and go. Um, but if the fevers are just persisting after a few days, it's worth looking into and making sure nothing else is going on. Um, the other thing is shortness of breath. So if a kid, if you ever are concerned about a kid's breathing, that's not anything to take lightly and make sure you get your kids seen as soon as possible.
1: All right. Dr. Catherine Williamson, pediatrician, Children's Hospital of Orange County. Doctor, thanks.
0: Coming up after a short break. Could the pandemic spark a larger push for Medicare for all? We saw all the death and suffering during the pandemic. There are lots of people out there who are now dealing with excessive hospital bills, even with health insurance.
1: Now that the Supreme Court's upheld the Affordable Care Act again, will lawmakers push to expand it, maybe Medicare for all? John McDonough, public health professor, Harvard's Chan School of Public Health, played major roles in helping to write and pass Massachusetts health care law in 2006 and the Affordable Care Act in 2010. So, John, does the high court ruling today open the door for
4: expansion? The law has already been expanded. In the American Rescue Plan that was signed into law by the president in March, the affordability of the subsidies, the premium subsidies, have been greatly expanded, uh, both deeper subsidies so it's more affordable and expanded to more people who couldn't get it before this. So in terms of building on and improving the ACA, it's already happening there are other things that the president would like to do to connect with more people and to particularly get about three million people who are in uh, twelve states that have yet to expand Medicaid uh, some kind of coverage. But uh, it's it's on target in terms of expanding. But the difficulty is the expansion that was done in March in the American Rescue Plan is only good for two years, and so the president is eager to get those expansions extended uh, in perpetuity. And that's going to be an important battle in the next couple of years.
1: For the Medicaid expansion, that was supposed to be for all 50 states, right? But then the court said, no, you don't all have to do it. It's optional. So now there's just 12 that have not done it, but there's, right there's now efforts to try and make it happen. about 12 or
4: 13, depending on how you count. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a much smaller number than a few years ago, but there's still... And some big ones, some big holdouts, Texas, Florida, Georgia, for example, uh, have left uh, uh, millions of people without coverage who could get it with the federal government picking up almost the entire tab, but they won't do it.
0: So opponents of Obamacare have tried now several different ways and several different times to get rid of it. Uh, Is this now done uh, or are there other things that we're not maybe that aware of down down the line? That still threaten it.
4: Well, there have been three life-threatening cases before the Supreme Court. The first one in 2012, and that survived by a five-to-four vote. Um, another one in 2015 that survived by a six-three vote, and today's vote is seven-to-two. So I think that the message is getting clearer as it goes forward. That the court doesn't have a lot of patience with what are really politically motivated challenges to the law that aren't really rooted in any serious legal analysis at this point.
1: And with each passing year, I mean, it's more in like the fabric of American health The longer it goes, the more it's in.
4: Yeah, there's now somewhere between 25 and 30 million Americans who are getting their health insurance coverage because of the Affordable Care Act. And it gets harder and harder to do that. And we saw that in 2017 when uh, President Trump and a Republican Senate and House spent nearly an entire year trying to repeal the entire law and utterly failed uh, because they couldn't really put forward a viable alternative that made sense to the American people.
1: John McDonough, public health professor, Harvard's Chan School of Public Health.
0: If you want to enjoy the majesty of Yellowstone or Yosemite this summer, You'll have to fight through all the crowds for that perfect scenic shot or selfie next to Old Faithful or El Capitan. Now that more and more people are vaccinated and eager to go on vacation, national parks, they are crowded. In fact, overcrowding in recent weeks has prompted park officials to launch online reservation systems at places like Montana's Glacier National Park and Zion National Park in Utah. Yellowstone this past Memorial Day weekend, it saw a 50% increase in the number of cars entering the park compared with the same holiday weekend in pre-pandemic 2019.
1: This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.